right, welcome to Now This Is Podcasting. I'm your host, Connor. I have my co-host, Jaden, here. Yee-hee. And former guest, Calvin. Thanks for having me back. And we're continuing our uh, October Spooktacular. We're talking about, uh, talking about Hereditary today, uh, directed by Ari Aster. And this is one I think we've we've been really excited to talk about Ari Aster. Uh, we have Hereditary, and then uh, we're going to do another podcast on Midsummer. I, I, I love this director. I am so oh. excited to... Because the, 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 this came out in 2018. Midsummer is 2019. I can't wait to see more stuff that he puts out. I love his films. Yeah, I love how he's like, we talked about a little uh, a little bit off uh, when we were setting uh, starting this up about his interviews, how he's just a giant film nerd. And yeah. I love listening to him for those reasons. Yeah, no, he's he's a little awkward, I think, in his interviews. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, he, but yeah, I, I, I love how uh, he's so like attention to detail. I think uh, Tony Collette, who's like the main character in this, she talks about he's the most prepared director he's ever worked with. And he essentially had the whole film planned out, you know, two years in advance. Like this guy, and all of that shows up in this film because everything is so purposeful and everything feels like it's. Uh, we talked about uh, Denis Villeneuve being kind of an auteur in a way. I think he Ari Aster is like more the definition of an auteur. Like, oh yeah, absolutely to it, a T. Yeah, everything is absolutely his vision. It, it's, it's his story. Yeah. it's his aesthetic. It's his characters. Um, yeah, it, from top to bottom, he, he controls everything. In it a way seems that, like he typically picks very good actors as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like the casting is amazing. Both, like, Which is interesting that you say that because I've seen some of his student films, um, yeah. Munchausen and The Strange Thing About the Johnsons. Have either of you seen those? No. So Munchausen is about uh, a woman who poisons her son uh, as he's leaving for college because she doesn't want him to leave. Oh, uh, so basically that uh, Pixar short. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. the with <laughs> yeah. the little dough boy. Yeah. Thing? Yeah. Oh, Bao. Yeah. Bao. Bao. Yeah. Oh, that's one of my favorites. I think I. <laughs> I think I refer to that one in our up podcast. That's one of my favorite. Yeah. Pixar shorts. <laughs> I like how we're starting this horribly depressing <laughs> movie with uh, referencing a, 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 a nice Pixar short. <laughs> yeah. But then the other one is uh, the strange thing about the Johnsons, and it's the story of uh, the son getting married, and on the wedding day, you find out that the son and the father actually have an incestuous relationship, and that the son has been raping the father for like 10, 10 15 world? years. Yeah. So this is, this is I think Hereditary is like, he's always, he's so concerned with uh, family dramas, and he has been for a long time, and then he finally hits this home run. Yeah, with, this, with Hereditary, because this is his first feature film. Yep. Uh, which yeah, what a what a great way to debut. This uh, had a I want to say a budget. It had ten million, which you know I, I think there's a lot of stuff coming out, especially all the A twenty four stuff we we keep going over. It all, it all has these like small budgets, and they all seem to have really good return. Like this had a box office of eighty million. Yeah, like, yeah. It, it, it it did well. Yeah, uh, make good movie. Low budget, high profits, dude. And they're finding a really good business model here. Yeah, which yeah. is kind of a thing with like uh, movies in general, especially like kind of your up and coming directors. They seem to do a horror movie. That's kind of a thing that exists where because they're usually like cheaper to make. You yeah, know? and and then if you get something good out of it, then they'll move on and kind of do something more of what they want to do. What I think is different about this is uh, Ari Aster wrote this and he wrote Midsummer as well, and both of those movies they have a very personal feel to them. Like the, this is something he's experienced and he's just translating it into a script and then translating it to film in a way that's like interesting for people to go watch. Yeah. And I love that. Like this the film feels very personal. It's not just like, okay, you know, I'm, I just need to do a horror movie to kind of like get my portfolio out there and then I can do stuff I really want to do. This seems like something he really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It definitely has that feel to me. So uh, we've kind of rambled a bit. Uh, Jane, what's your first impression of this film? It is freaky as fuck, dude. Um, 
I actually took a couple of tries to get through this movie because I don't do well with like super like movies make me super uncomfortable. Uh, this is one of those. It's very good. I love this movie. But yeah, uh, the first time I watched it, I had to turn it off right away. Um, pretty 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 quick into the movie, I was like, I can't handle this right now. Yeah, um, it's, it's tough. Yeah. It is. A, it's a tough watch. Um, but I mean, I would recommend this movie to anybody. Yeah. So. For sure. Uh, yeah. Calvin, what do you think of this one? So I'd say Hereditary is one of those films that falls into the genre of horror only really because it has scary and supernatural elements. But at its core, it's it's a story of family tragedy. It, it owes more to the melodrama than any horror film. But it's, you know, it's Tony Collette's performance. Like this film suffocates the viewer with grief and stages the drama of a family being pulled apart at the seams by these these dark outer forces. And I think the success of its horror is how well they hide these sinister forces until they literally descend upon the family. Yeah. Yeah. I, I as we've been doing more and more podcasts and I'm watching a lot of movies and I think the, the ones I'm connecting with the most is like the family drama. Like that's the, those stories always speak a lot to me. And, and I think you could remove the horror elements from this movie entirely. And I would still find this movie totally captivating. I yeah. love the family drama in this. It's, it's, it captures me entirely. And, and again, I think, like I said, that speaks to kind of the personal feel that Ari Aster brings to this. Like it feels yeah. like a real story. It feels like something like grief that he's dealt with in his life. And he translated that to film. And I totally connect with all that. I just am so thankful that there are more and more movies coming out now that are horror and they don't rely on the jump scare to make you feel frightened. This is just frightening because of the the atmosphere of it, the feel of it. And there are things in it that are like, like the paranormal uh, elements to it that do make it scary as well. But I, I just think there's, there's just such a tense feeling, such a horror vibe to this that you don't. Even, it doesn't rely on a jump scare. And I'm so thankful for that. I, I love that we are reviewing movies that don't like rely on that trope to make them successful uh another thing uh, uh calvin brought up tony collette uh is amazing in this yeah, she's uh, fucking wonderful it's like one of the best performances i've seen like but apparently not oscar worthy dude not okay. even nomination she, worthy. Okay, she i do not give a fuck about oscars or any of that stuff <laughs> it's all bullshit it's all bought yeah so production I, companies i usually don't care either i'm just saying like how can you watch this and not nominate her um margot robbie got nominated for i tanya which i think is a bad movie yeah and like she does an accent in it and she got a nomination and tony yeah, collect got nothing it's margot robbie like that's why i just yeah. think it's it's free, uh, crazy uh francis mcdormand ended up winning it that year for uh what three billboards outside ebbing missouri yeah which is a fantastic movie well deserved but how does Tony Collette not get nominated? Yeah, it's just like the, it's the range of emotions when you can bring that type of uh, of uh, personal uh, expression to a film and have it so believable. Like those, I connect with all of the all of the elements of that character. How can you not say that that's one of the best performances? Because it's so easy to be melodramatic the moment you're screaming. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like take. I mean, we have. I know we haven't covered it yet, but 1984's Dune, like uh, the Baron Harkonnen, just literally screaming the whole time. Like that's not acting, yeah. man. Yeah, it's it's not. I don't. It's not believable. Yeah, uh, I think the the problem is because this falls into the horror genre. It's just immediately like cast off. It, yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. okay, not a real movie. Like, but but again, that's my why I love this movie so much. If you remove the horror element from it and it's just a family drama, this is absolute Oscar bait. Like this is, how could you not look at this movie and nominate it for everything? It's because there's a paranormal element put into it. And so it, it didn't get awards. And I agree with you, Jane. I don't care much about awards either because yeah. if you, if you snubbed Tony Collette then it in 2018, yeah. then your award show sucks. Yeah. Like, then, like, yeah. Literally like, like listen to like, like the good actors and stuff like they usually just like don't give a shit about it. 
It's just like, hey, man, like we get it. Like these people are buying these things. Like that's what's happening yeah. right now. Right. You yeah. just, it's just a pat on the back. It's the same sort of uh, thing we we say with Robert Eggers and his attitude in in, in uh, interviews. Like, yeah, uh, some people are saying this is a slow burn. I didn't say it. Yeah, I, I love his, I love his interviews, his attitude yeah. towards film. But if we ever do like a when it gets to award season, we do a podcast on that stuff. I think it'll mostly just be to bash it. Like this is such nonsense. Yeah, yeah. here, here, are all of the films that we think are better. Especially, oh, yeah. if Wham doesn't win anything, you know. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like world cinema is just forgotten, which is yeah. the big reason why I find, uh, well, most people find uh, the Cannes Film Festival to be the the gold standard of what was actually the good, the best film of the, the year. The Cannes Film Festival. Yeah, C A N N E S. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what country it's in right now. I want to say that that's French, though. I trust you. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> uh, so now that we've gotten our first impressions out, uh, do we want to move into like the the look of the film? Yeah, the aesthetic here is so interesting. It's crazy, dude. It's it's like because it's not steady throughout the film for the most part. Because like there's a lot of like, like brightness to it in some parts, but then like mm-hmm. the dark parts of it are just like so freaky and like like chilling, and it just really gets me involved in the film. Like I cannot take my eyes off of it because yeah. of how good it looks. And that's what's so what's so crazy, too, is like you can't take your eyes off of it. It is incredibly slow movie. Yeah, the shot and disturbing. Like, it's... Well, what I mean yeah. is like you don't even notice that a lot of these shots, some some of them are over two minutes long. Yeah. And I, I wonder how much that, how much you notice that. Like, how, how slow, the how long these takes are. Yeah, I... If I mean, you guys have heard me harp on it and I bring it up, I feel like every podcast, I refer to Hereditary so much in terms of like, this is what I like to see in a movie, like long takes, um, give me a wide shot, let your, let your actors just like, let them deliver some dialogue, no cutting back and forth between, you know, camera one, camera two, having close ups on someone, someone else. It's, I love this film and I love how he composes all of his shots. Everything is so interesting. And so it doesn't matter to me that these are long takes and that these scenes seemingly to have nothing happen. It's just, I'm so interested in everything I'm seeing. And, uh, part of why I think that works so well in this film is, uh, the whole interior of the house is built on a soundstage. Mm-hmm. So it's not like an actual house at which it, it matters because you get shots that you couldn't just film in, in a home. It's not. Oh, absolutely. Especially like when they're going into the model and then all of a sudden it's the actual house. Mm-hmm. Those shots are amazing. Like I was like, "How did you do that? That's freaking wild to me." Yeah, and there's like, like especially uh, when it concerns the uh, dinner table, you can't get the ca- the camera far back enough to get a wide enough shot there. So that's why you need the soundstage. You need to be able to move that to take that wall down. Yeah, and which is which is so cool. But I I love the pacing here. Like especially, like, I think the perfect example of this of this all of the elements you were talking about, Connor, is when Annie is leaving Joel's the craft store. And she sees Joan in the parking lot. Like that shot lasts a good three minutes, but you don't feel it because of how the camera moves. Like we see Annie come out. It pans with her as she comes to the parking lot and sees Joan. Then we follow her and Joan to her car. And here the camera is stationary for the rest of the shot. But we don't notice that because we still haven't and we still haven't cut cut because the subject is so engrossing now joan is going on about um uh her seance and all of these things we really don't even see annie's face but it's all our, our curiosity here is of the morbid so, sort because of genre expectations so it's it's so it's just an excellent bit of filmmaking yeah no i i can't gush enough about just how how everything looks and how there it's not overly edited just the amount of time you get to breathe in every scene and, and you get to you 
it like I said, this this guy Ari Aster, he just goddamn does he know how to make a film? It just everything about it, everything you're seeing is is wonderful, and and I yeah. love I love the time it takes on every scene, and it, it doesn't like the I think Jaden said it's it's kind of the way it's paced out. You kind of don't even like realize that. I mean, this movie is like two hours long. It, it, I don't even think it feels that long no, at all. No, it doesn't. Which is crazy because like a lot of movies like this, like I feel like where dark commute scenes can be drawn out and stuff like that. Not one scene in here feels drawn out. Like no. there's there's one like um, uh, after the car after the the head the beheading car scene uh, that takes forever. Like that scene yeah. after that, but like it takes forever to make you feel uncomfortable and like it hits the ha- the nail right on the head with that like like it wasn't like like oh i wasn't like sitting like oh my god like can this end i'm like this is fucking torture for like this character and me at the same time like i'm like in his shoes i feel like right now like mm-hmm. this is this is awfully brilliant like i don't know what else how to else describe that like yeah yeah we're, we're talking about like kind of the length and hanging on these shots for so long uh alex wolf uh the kid who plays um peter he said that uh, they filmed enough stuff that this this would have been like pushing over three hours if they just kind of included everything. And most of what got cut is the family drama stuff. So I would be interested to see that just because, like I said, I I, I love that kind of thing. But the, the fact that there's there's somewhere exists a, a three hour version of this film, I, I I would be interested to watch that. I don't know if I can handle all of that. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just love his framing and his composition yeah. shots. I, I can't get over how much I like him as a filmmaker. Um, yeah, and speaking of like composition, I love some of the the uh, techniques that he ke- that he continues to use. Like he loves using mirrors in his images. I love I love setting up a mirror in uh, a shot because it's it's an extra visual element um, of the. Sometimes it's it's describing like reflections of inner mind states, and I think those are the ones that that happened here. Like Peter driving, um, you you have all of the rear view ones. You have Peter in class seeing Charlie's the rear view kind of just come down like in his mind's eye yeah, right. in the desk. That is unsettling. Yes, very. The the mirrors are, were used very well in this and Midsummer. Both are just like. Like huge, yep. and then and, Peter sees yeah. the reflection in himself in a. It's like a cabinet with like a mm-hmm. glass window yep. on it, and it's him like smiling, really creepy. <laughs> yeah, and also like during uh, Annie's uh, grief writhing scene, there's a mirror right there, so you see her undulating in the mirror as well, and it's just. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's just so many different things going on as the camera slowly dollies out and we see the um, the window in the background and Steve is holding her and it's just a wide a wide shot. So normally those shots are treated like with with brevity and lightheartedness when you t- get something that far out, but we just it feels so much worse than a close-up brevity and lightheartedness might be the exact opposite way i would describe this film <laughs> yeah exactly but that's, and that's like what why, why he's such a good filmmaker is he he uh takes a, a camera angle that would be uh that defies the convention of yeah. what it normally says and it's the it's the most potent form of emotion that doesn't belong in that type of shot which is just crazy to me uh you had a note um about like kind of the upside down camera work here, mm, just the one. It's it's only because it's something represented again in Midsummer. But when she runs through the hallway to go through her mom's stuff after finding uh, Joan uh, Joan isn't home, the camera is up on the ceiling, and then she runs past it, and then it just flips and follows her, and it's upside down now. You know, I I, I just I again, it's just a it's fun. He, he does a lot of fun things. I, I, or like oh, when oh. Uh, she wakes up Peter. 
uh, and the camera twists. Yeah. Yeah. That's frightening. Yeah. 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 Just a little, just a little, it's not even like a 90 degree tilt. It's close to it, but it's, it's so cool. It's, it's like, not a shot that you normally yeah. do. It's like, uh, everything awful about a Dutch angle and turning it into something like that fits the film. It's like uncomfortable. And then it, you snap back into like, okay, we're, cause it, those kind of follow like a dream sequence and stuff like that. Or like, uh, a, yeah, yeah. It was the, it was the dream sequence. Then she wakes up. Okay, the, yeah, okay. And yeah, does yeah. the shot of like her behind the door, um, and performing the seance because we hear, hear her muttering, and then she realizes, oh, okay, look, we can all do this now. Yeah. yeah. So I, I like the camera kind of it's being off because kind of the scene you just it it follows was a little bit off, and then it, it snaps back into like the reality, like you're back in like the actual like film now, like you're mm-hmm. you're out of the dream or you're out of like a vision or something like that. I love that because I hate Dutch angles, but this is like a, I wouldn't really call it a Dutch angle, but it's, it's starting out of, you know, something you wouldn't Normal. expect and then snapping back into it. I love that. I think it's great. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the other thing is, is focus. Uh, focus is one of my favorite things to play with in the horror genre loves it as well. But most of the time it's like a, a novelty or a cheap trick. Like here, uh, Aster's using it to isolate perspectives, like to draw your attention and to disorient. Um, they're more than just the, the typical camera techniques that you find in horror where we're just trying to make the audience uncomfortable. Like, like that's the whole purpose. But these work in so many other ways um, that you would find in dramas as well. Um, I think... Uh, one of the the best examples is a, of this is when Charlie is in school at her desk. We don't see the teacher. We don't see any of the other class uh, classmates because the the depth of field is so shallow that the only thing in focus is Charlie and her desk. And then um, the pigeon flies into the window, and it's a it's a jump scare. But that wasn't the it wasn't necessarily the intent because that shot was meant meant to get you in uh, Charlie's mind. And then it's just a nice novelty jump scare on top of it so it it doesn't feel cheap like it would in in any other horror movie yeah i like the way you put that because uh, like i started this out i was saying like thank god there's movies coming out that aren't revolved around jump scares to get you scared if i had to kind of nitpick this movie that would be the one kind of jump scare i like the way you put it how you're supposed to be getting into the mind and of 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 charlie and then when the bird hits it kind of snaps you out of it i do think it's a little jump scary but uh it, it it works in this where I don't think it works in like conjuring because that those movies are built around the jump scare. This one uses it in literally like, like that's all they're like, yeah. Hey, here's where you think it's going to happen. Yeah. Oh, wait 12 seconds. And yeah. then it will. like that one, yeah. this movie does it in a much more clever way than those films do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so there's an, and there's another element where it's not jump scare, uh, not necessarily right away, but when Peter first gets up in the attic after Addie, uh, Annie has chased him, and the focus is just on him on the back of his head, and like normally I don't I don't love people uh, like I I just gonna slowly turn for dramatic effect, but like you feel like oh don't turn your head man yeah you know something fucked up is in here Peter does that like two or three times in this movie the slow turn and like yeah it it, it somehow it works in this because it's like. It, it's a trope, I guess, in horror films, but it's like, like I am as scared as he is going into it, where I think yeah. in other movies, it's like, okay, turn around so I can see the thing. Yeah. No, this one, it, well, like one thing like with his mom up in the corner. That's another oh, one I want to yeah, talk about yeah. in terms of like focus. Yeah. Because uh, this film, I think, does, I, I, I would say like quote unquote jump scares in a way that it's like, you kind of jump scare yourself. Self, yeah. It's like, Oh man! Oh, she's in the corner. Like, and, then, and you're like, oh crap! Fuck, like, yeah. It's, so like, it's like it's a really clever way to like, do it. Like where, how long has she been there? Like, did I? What did I notice this right away? What's going yeah. on? And then like, yeah, it's just it's very creepy because like it just stays there too. Like none yeah. of it. It's just it's just a lingering effect. 
of terrifi- like terrifyingness, I guess. I'm yeah. Put that. Yeah. But, uh, I like that scene a lot. Uh, so I saw this in theaters. I was, I was, uh, and, and I think about that scene, noticing her in the corner. And then I was like, oh, I can't wait for this to come out because I need to rewatch that and be like, how long was she there? Because I yeah. noticed it. Did I notice it really late? Did I notice it early? And that's what I think. It's like, it, you, you've scared yourself yep. by noticing what's going on in the frame. And it, he's such a clever filmmaker. Like, yeah. it's so good. And, and think- it's, it's using focus and keeping her fuzzy in the background and yeah. keeping the focus on peter and so then it's like once you kind of because these shots take a long time and you get to explore them instead of it just cutting around all the time yeah and then when you finally realize what's happened you're like oh man like i'm freaked out now yeah all of that like those elements is like what makes me feel like this is the most terrifying movie that i've ever seen in my life like yeah like, like when he when uh annie um goes up to the attic after the funeral and he's going through her mom's stuff yeah and then you see ellen in the corner yeah like Nothing happens. Nothing. Dude, and that is so, there. Oh Nothing's my. explained. It's just, and it's so creepy. Yeah. You know what yeah. I, I love about that now that I've, you guys have mentioned it and what I just said about kind of scaring yourself. I'm getting goosebumps right now, yeah, actually. Me too. <laughs> Annie says that when she sees her mom and she goes back into the bedroom and she's like, oh, I scared myself. Yeah. And it, that's how I feel watching this movie. It's yeah. like, oh, I scared myself watching this. Yes. Like, yeah. yeah. I love, that's just a, that just came to me just now. I love that it's it's sort of like kind of a reference to how I feel watching this movie and to like have that in the film, I think is awesome. Yeah. So, and then on the other end of these, these very shallow depth of field shots, um, you have this, this entirely other, uh, uh, type of shot, these dioramas, all of the miniatures, and it's all flat. Like we change from these individual expressions to like full family and, the idea of the of the dollhouse aesthetic or these uh, the miniatures, the dioramas, whatever you want to call them, it's such an interesting convention. And the first shot to set up the entire film, we've, we've talked about before the first shot being allegories for the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. I think that's so interesting because the first shot is this an amazing achievement uh, in terms of exposition and like the technical fun of it. Like we start with the treehouse centered in the window frame, then we dolly zoom out. It's because, you know, if you notice the the... It stays centered. Like whatever they're doing right there, they're messing. It's not just a dolly out because the right, right. the uh, um, treehouse stays in such a way that they're also playing with focus. Um, but so we we come out of there, centered in the uh, the the frame, and then we pan over to the house model and then slowly dolly in on Peter's room. So we start with where the film ends and are shown how the characters exist in this dollhouse environment. And if you think of the coven as being represented by the treehouse, then they've always been on the periphery watching the ponds in their little fabricated world. Oh, I like that a lot. Isn't that and and that is just and then that's further represented um not just in the miniatures but the way they set up certain uh scenes you know right like, uh, like w- the one uh that i think of the the most is um obviously a lot of shots in peter's room but also the dinner scene where tony collette has her um or annie has her little outburst and like and i can't forgive yeah. because you don't take responsibility for anything and yeah how, how did she not get an award oh my god uh, that scene is how did she not win anything insane to um, me dude could you imagine that conversation happening like, that's that a, is again crazy. this this whole thing feels so personal and so real yeah. um i like that you bring up the miniatures uh, i just i connect with that a lot like just personally because I, I i paint miniatures and i like doing little uh you know building little structures and stuff for my little guys to run around and, and so like i love that stuff just as a visual like uh part of the film like i i instantly was like oh i'm all about this like and the fact that it also has a, a like a a narrative reason for being there makes it even better. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I love the miniatures. I think it's awesome. Yeah, but yeah, and I I just love how 
how we play with perspective because of those. So as Annie gets up and leaves, um, uh, at the end of that, uh, we have uh, Peter sitting there, and then Steve just break da- breaks down crying. That's just, it's so interesting there. And then how we also use uh, the dollhouse for, um, like, history you know in of the of the family drama like how the mother is trying to literally breastfeed charlie and there's a miniature of yeah that. Uh, yeah i love that it's yep. it's alluded it's, to like in their dialogue but to actually have it made it's so weird yeah like who would who would make their i think the the creepiest one is when she recreates the kind of the beheading scene that is crazy it's just sitting there and then like and Steve comes in. He's like, like, "What are you doing?" He's yeah. like, "What if Peter saw that?" And she's like, "It's not about him." And I think that 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 scene, along with like kind of the whole movie, but that scene really it spells out how separate she is from the rest of her family and how she's going through the grieving process in a totally different way. And yeah. she's she's totally separate from them. I think the film really speaks to kind of her, like kind of how solitary she is during it. And that scene, it's like she's not. It's not about him. It's like yeah. this is obviously like you obviously can't do this as a parent. Like that's fucked up. It's so yeah. it's so messed up. And the fact that she has such a disconnect from the rest of her family in that scene, I think it is. And again, it's it's. I love that the miniatures have like a they're a narrative tool. They're not just something interesting in your film because they look cool. I love that they play a role in it yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Like I was saying, like with the camera angles, with the uh, the mindscape of the individual, and with just the fun of cool miniatures yeah. you know like just that element alone is is also is fun for a lot of people so it works in three or four different ways depending on how you look at it you had a little background isn't it the studio that did a lot of the special effects didn't they take on doing the miniatures as well yeah apparently the guy who was uh like the head guy in charge of special effects that's how he got into hollywood it's like oh you you need someone to do them and i that's that's basically my wheelhouse i love doing those and so uh, like you could that do was, that, Connor. That could be you. Yeah, <laughs> dude, I, I should go to Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. They were talking about like how, um, like some of them got finished like the day before they were required to be on set. That's so wild. That man. is crazy. I yeah. That I mean, there's like, a lot of detail in those things. Like they are very very good. Yeah, and the reason yeah. like it had to be that way uh, is because what they did is they they sat down and then they went through all of their uh, shot selections um, or their their shot list and like tried to block everything out and they were like okay i want this at one eighth scale and he was like you do realize that means that your the room of your model is going to be like 10 feet <laughs> and wow. your humans are going to be like 12 inches tall and he's like okay so we don't want that <laughs> <laughs> the the one aspect of Ari Aster that isn't an auteur he should have just stuck to his guns he's like make it 10 feet <laughs> yeah exactly we got to build another house just for our miniature landscape it's going to it's actually vivarium <laughs> you talk you talk about the the shot list that he came up with he came up with it's a 75 page shot list that he gave the cinematographer prior to filming Yep. Like that's how prepared this guy is. Like that's yeah. amazing. Like, it's actually fairly normal um in terms of like there's there's a difference between coming up with all of your shot length and sticking with them cuz some people are really good at making your shot list or your storyboard and be like, "Okay, this is the this is exactly what I want. We're going to go and do this." And a lot of filmmakers aren't great at that and so they get on set and like okay we need to change things so there's a little bit difference in terms of like a tour uh, approach some people know that they don't do that so that they don't do that well so they'll have a a, a looser idea of how they want to shoot things and that's just i think it's just the way that like some people make films and others um uh, others aren't very good at it so it's yeah 
the the shot thing that it's it's nice it's it's just nice that like some people can actually uh achieve the vision that they have that they've written down yeah it's very very difficult to do that yeah just 75 pages is that seems like a lot i i I, and it shows it shows his how prepared he is i think it is absolutely translated into the film uh do we want to move on to the score yes i am sad i didn't see this in theaters yeah, it would have been amazing, especially in a Dolby theater. Mm-hmm. It would have been fantastic. Like, did you hear that low thumping mm-hmm. noise? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's it was meant to sound like it was coming from the other theater. Really? That was that that's was how what, it feels. Yeah, yeah. That's how Ari Aster described what the sound he wanted it to feel. Because like what it's it's meant to do is it's uh it's like it's a tactile noise. Like you feel it in your gut. Like it drives the unease in a really subtle and subconscious way. But it reflects the tragedy of uh, of the grams being stalked by the coven. Like it's coming. It's this unseen force that's making me uncomfortable and kind of sick to my stomach. But we're so focused on what's in front of us, we don't we don't notice it. We just have that sense and i think it's so cool yeah just like there's a threat out there we don't know what it is but it's coming and this family's in danger we have no idea what's going on almost yeah and like you just slowly piece it together and the score just really represents that throughout the whole movie yeah colin stetson is the uh he did the score for this and uh just go ahead and and look him up real quick his like the first image that pops up on google is him just jamming on a saxophone it looks great he's got like a tank top on just absolutely getting it and then like you see that picture and then to hear the score he came up with, like you would not associate. Like yeah. you see this guy, you'd be like, "How did he come up with that?" I think it's amazing. Yeah, because he's like an avant-garde like saxophone player. Yeah, like, like he plays, he records sax, uh, uh, saxophone tracks for uh, like a lot of big bands. Like I think Arcade Fire is one of them. Too. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, you're on his Wikipedia page, aren't you? No, I just have it on Google. I just, I just, you keep, just, you just, I just keep copy, looking at save his, that. Like, I just that's look your at desktop. his desktop. <laughs> I've just been looking at his picture this whole time. I'm, I'm barely a part of the podcast. I'm just looking at Colin Stetson. <laughs> Um, one of the, uh, kind of the only direction that Ari Aster gave him on, uh, the score, he's like, just make it evil. That was like his whole direction. Yeah. That's, that's all like kind of all the prompt he was given. And I guess he, uh, he like went out into the woods, like closed his eyes, like blindfolded. He just like wanted to hear nature and, you know, that's like kind of was the inspiration for the score, which I think is really interesting. I, I, I think it shows up and I think you get a lot of cool nature shots. You, you, you see them, their house is like surrounded by woods. I mean, I think it's it, so cool. It, 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 the score lends itself to that. You know, they're not in a city. So I think the sound makes more sense for kind of the area they're in. I love how, again, I think like this film does a lot of like seclusion. And so the fact that they're kind of, it seems like they're in a house in the middle of nowhere, you know, surrounded by the woods. I, I, I love the feel of it. I think the score really enhances what you're seeing on screen and i i love that a lot yeah absolutely yeah. and it's it's weird that it's not melodic but it's still is so n- unique you know yeah like i it's not I, it doesn't stick with me in terms of uh it's melodic structure it doesn't get catchy but it's like those noises get stuck in your head yeah they're very they're very original i think uh it seems like a lot of the stuff we've been watching lately it 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 doesn't have like a theme that you latch onto and you hear it like recur throughout the film. I think this has a lot of just like kind of bits and pieces that fit. They're almost like tailor made for each scene. It feels like. And so I, I like that a lot. It's not just like a, you know, I think you watch like a star Wars movie and you're like, Oh, I recognize this or Indiana Jones or something like that. You know, you, you latch onto some kind of uh, some tone or rhythm that you're used to. This film doesn't even give you that. There's no comfort in even the score because it seems to kind of change based on like what you're seeing. And I think it's great. So yeah, and here the score is very much a part of the movie, which is, you know, I'm a big fan of that. It's not, 
outside the movie. It's not distracting. It's just part of it. And it's part of the story and it helps the story build and helps you become more involved in the film. Mm-hmm. You said that uh, uh, one of our earlier podcasts, we did Lamb, and you said you thought that that might be your favorite score. Yeah. Is this like rank up near it? Or? This this and Midsummer are both very, very close. But uh, no, I think Lamb is still Dude, top I, of the line. I just wonder like what you always talk about how much you like these scores and these yeah. like slow scores, these minimalist scores. I just feel like you got to be at work just like listening to so the hereditary soundtrack. So I did. I put on uh, a couple weeks ago, I had Midsummer and Hereditary just both playing back to back when I was yeah. working in my desk. I started listening to the Midsummer yeah. one too. And then my boss came back and he was like, what the fuck is going on back here? <laughs> He's like, why are you listening to this shit? And I was like, I don't know, man. I'm just in the mood for it. And he was like, what are you doing? I'm like cleaning up the back area and stuff and... I just think you're, yeah. you're like your Spotify history must just be wild. It's just all it's all just tones. <laughs> <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's so funny that uh, you latch onto those more than like the big bombastic scores yeah, you hear in like a Marvel movie or something. Yeah, like that. which is like I mean, like obviously, like I love Marvel movies and stuff like that. But like, there's the Avengers theme song and there's like Star Wars theme song and all that stuff. And like, they're iconic and all that stuff. But it's not part of the movie. It's just another product that they're marketing, and that's all that is. Yeah. Which it's is a, this, is, this is nothing. This is not a product. They're not marketing shit. They're just making art, and this is part of the art form. It's like yes. if a painting could also play music, like that's what I'm looking at right now. Yeah. Or if a book had pictures. Yeah, which they sometimes do. Yeah, exactly. But a lot of novels don't. <laughs> yeah. Like the higher <laughs> levels of literature. Hungry, <laughs> hungry caterpillar, man. It's a banger. <laughs> Again, I think you gotta you gotta get ready for you know coming to a gallery near you downtown Denver, Jaden's yeah. Jaden's exhibit where he's it's just all these like stills of these films we've been watching with just the score playing. Yeah. I'm yeah. excited for I'm excited sweet, for you to, I'm excited for you to open up the gallery and put that one out. I think it'd be amazing. Ah, I can't wait. I mean, you know enough people that you could certainly call in a few favors. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do we want to move into some of the characters now? Yeah. yeah. Let's move into the characters. I uh, I think they're. I like Annie. Yeah, I think we've uh, we've gone on enough about how. I mean, it, not not enough. Uh, we've established that we like her a lot. Uh, she's not only is it's. I think we've talked more about Tony Collette and how much we like her, but I think the character Annie is 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 awesome. Like uh, it's interesting and like yeah. her, like I said, like her kind of how she's apart from everyone else. And I I like to think of this movie a lot as. Uh, how different people deal with, deal with grief. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously following the, the, I mean, the death of Charlie is kind of the impetus for all that. And like, she's, we, we talked about like her writhing on the ground, just like crying. And, and that scene feels so real to me. She's like, I want to be dead. Like this hurts too much. I want to be dead. Yeah. And nothing about that seems melodramatic. No, it me. seems real as hell. Like it's, which is interesting. Cause Ari Aster has said, he's like, I like melodramatic stuff. He's like, I like that. But that feels so real. Like, yeah, that's like the loss of your child. Like that's like the best besides actually seeing a mother in the most painful situation ever, which I don't actually want to experience that. I'm fine with just to put it on film. Yeah. I don't actually have to see it. But as close, that's got to be as accurate as you can get, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, we saw it in Lamb, too, with yeah. the, the mother sheep bleeding for its baby. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> same thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and if that Tony Collette and that sheep, they should yeah. have won. Yeah. Yeah, if that, yeah, I was about to say if that sheep is not nominated this year, then what are we even doing, yeah. Academy? Yeah. Um, I mean, same performance. <laughs> One thing about Tony Collette is like with me, like I feel very empathetic towards the character because she like physically looks like my mom. And oh, a little bit. Yeah, You're kind of right. Like, man. And it's just like the whole movie. I'm like, man, this is like looking at like like it's like obviously it's not my mom, or but like I feel this like like 
uh, empathy towards just like looking at my mom like going through like this terrible fucking time, and then like it's the son who like almost did it to her even though it's not, like, right? And then I just feel guilt and like I feel all this like weird feelings like that scene at the dinner table like made me feel like a piece of shit person, almost. right? Yeah, it's like I didn't was, even do anything wrong. Right. And I, was just, like, <laughs> I, I feel, feel like terrible. Like yeah. I feel so bad for her and. It just uh, her acting is phenomenal in this. Um, I think that'd be interesting to our moms should all watch this. <laughs> I'm almost positive I could never convince my mother yeah. to watch this. No, probably not. <laughs> uh, because yeah, we all I think we all look at this as the perspective of a son. You know, none of us have kids, so we yeah. can't we can't look at it at, at Steve's perspective. And so you kind of have to take on that lens. So I wonder how how many moms watch this and we're like that probably feels accurate. Yeah, uh, oh, that's interesting because I. I try to put myself in all of the characters. I I feel like Annie's pain more than I do any any of the other ones. Um, I don't really think of the the person I necessarily like relate to physically as the one where I deposit my experience into. You know what I mean? So I guess the same maybe way, I... like I love Midsummer so much, like. I resonate so much with Danny. Yeah, and massive. We'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah we'll talk about episode, that, yeah. that a lot, but it has nothing to do with um, her gender or anything like that. Nothing, yeah. I guess I maybe worded that wrong. I, I don't mean that I identify with Peter in this situation. What I mean is like the only way I can look at this film is as as like a son or a brother to uh, Charlie. Because that's the like only relationship like you two have. Like, yeah, so yeah. like I can't look at this as a from the perspective of a father. I mean, I understand what you mean. Like, I, I'm not saying I identify with Peter. Like, oh, like he's I latch onto his emotion, and that's who I'm following through this. I'm just saying, like, just from the outside, I have no idea how a mother feels going through this kind of thing. So I can't like have that perspective like, well, genuinely. And that's what I mean. Like, that's why why I think film is such a great medium is because you you can experience these things. Um, in a lesser version, like obviously this isn't real life, um, so it's not exactly how things would go. These aren't necessarily real emotions, but when you put yourself into another person's shoes, you start to have this this sense of empathy and compassion that you're not going to find in, in normal life. And you can start to uh, get in other people's minds and think more uh, uh, outside of yourself. Um, so there, there are exercises, I think, in empathy, in movies yeah. like this especially. It's the same as like, yeah, no, I agree like with that. My, my empathy, <clears throat> my empathic nature is like telling me like, like I need to feel fucking sorry for her. That I need to like, mm. how do I fix this? How do I care for this character? Like, how do I get her out of this awful mind state? And she's in so much pain. And like, I'm feeling that pain from her. Yeah, is what I'm saying. And like, that's it's it's. I think it is easier for me to represent like that feeling as like a more of like a son or, you know, not necessarily her, but being empathetic for that character from a different perspective. I yeah. guess. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. I like, uh, again, kind of how she's dealing with grief and then like kind of her isolation. She keeps kind of moving further and further away. That's when she's uh, she goes to like that grief counseling. She uh, is introduced to Joan. And I think that's kind of furthers her separation from the family. And uh, because it's all predicated on a lie, too. Right. Yep. Yeah. It's there's so much manipulation and like that, like the, the cult, like you guys say, it's. Well, it's, no, it's not in the, the cult, but that the, the her uh, the where she was going, like yeah. she was going to the movies. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. So okay. it's predicated on a lie. Like again, I can't. Exp- I don't know why you wouldn't say that you can talk about this. You know? Yeah, she's yeah. The, the like, fact that she has to hide very, it. Yeah. Yeah, it seems very honest and real. Like I don't think that. I mean, her husband is a um, a psychologist, a psychiatrist. I don't remember which. Clearly, he is uh, understanding of 
those types of uh, grief expressions. Well, well, I think I that's probably like, why she did it. He says she that. didn't because she didn't want his help. She didn't want him to know everything that she's going through. Probably because she feels some kind of guilt because she feels anger and resentment towards her son in this moment, and she well, doesn't want that represented like, through her family. Even the first one though, she goes because of uh, before Charlie dies. Yeah, and so that's what I mean. It's like like why. That's fair. Yeah, why yeah. wouldn't why wouldn't you be like I'm going to go do a grief counseling thing real quick, Steve, like cuz you know, it's not I just have so many so much baggage with my mother in general. Uh I think it might be might be good, but she says I I'm going to go see a movie. Yeah, you you bring that up and how understanding he is. He says that at like the beginning of the movie cuz it's you're kind of following the funeral of her mother and then they get back home and she's like I don't like really feel bad. Should I feel worse? Like what's happening he's like it, you know you, you're feeling whatever you need to feel right now he's like it, whatever happens it'll come with time and he's like he's very understanding about it so yeah why why does she not why does she lie about it it, it is odd it is very yeah. weird yeah but that scene like her at the grief counseling uh circle that's that's such a, an amazing monologue oh yeah going on about kind of her family history and i think a lot of the stuff in that monologue sets up things for later in the film like she talks about her brother and how he committed suicide and he felt like his mom was putting something into him and yeah. that's what drove him to it. And that, that plays out later in the film, yeah. I think. Uh, but it's just, even without kind of that, like I said, without the paranormal element introduced in, into that scene at all, it's still, a very it's good still scene. so good. Yeah. Like it just, and and I love when the camera then kind of flips around to the, uh, the, the support group and they're like, what the hell is going on? Like that's kind of the, she just unloaded all this baggage right there. And like their reaction I think is great. Yeah, I love the way it's shot. Like normal, a lot of times we we shoot uh, people in a circle uh, over the shoulder, so it's everyone's perspective within the group. But how we have it set up here is it's it's so far back, and it's everybody in the circle centered in the frame, and at the the middle of it is uh, is Annie. So everyone's eyes and attitudes, and you can actually see Joan off to the to the right in right. the first shot. Um, I think there was one other cult member or a coven member that I'd noticed and it was the old guy with the white beard. Yeah. Um, I didn't notice any other ones there. They definitely tried to stay away from the obvious ones they had introduced, like the the man looking at Charlie at the funeral, the woman waving to her at the uh, playground. Um, but I think of that as like, it's like a collection of, uh, uh, of all of these people. Um, maybe uh, mourning Annie, or I mean mourning uh, Ellen. Or um, you know, communing in terms of like conjuring, but right. if, and that's why I find that that uh, that setup so interesting is because it's very different than how we normally shoot these things. But then as it as it just sucks you in on her perspective and everybody looking at her, it's almost yeah. it almost get like a sinister sense. Yeah, yeah. I know we we have some scenes we want to talk about. We're kind of already on this one, so let's wrap up kind of what we think of this scene. You think that it's uh, kind of the morning the matriarch yeah like like she's gone now i like to think of the uh that kind of grief support group as like the cult being like predatory like yeah they they they, they are latching onto people in their weakest moment and and then you know joan comes later and she's like oh just say these words and you'll get you'll get the person you love back and i think that is like that's what i think uh the kind of that grief group is i think it is the cult like uh going after people in their weakest moment yeah i didn't necessarily think of it as like mourning or anything like that. Like they're all together kind of mourning the same person. Mm-hmm. You just don't know it. I like that idea a lot, but I that's what I thought. I was like, oh, this is like so gross. Like I, like coming after people in their worst moment, you know? Yeah. And so I guess, and then this, I, we should probably talk about Steve, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, 
there's not much to him, man. He's in the, he's in the movie, I yeah. guess. He cries a couple times, and those are really powerful. I, uh, he's scenes, obviously but... the most sane person in the film. Yeah, most yeah. most definitely. Yeah. I think uh, again, I think each character is supposed to be a representation of how people deal with grief differently. And I like to think of uh, you have some people who are more, more stoic when something tragic happens, and the way they deal with grief is to support the people around them. Yeah, yeah. problem solvers. Yeah, and and so it's like you know, uh, Annie's you know, losing it. She's she's crying on the ground, and he's just there to hold her. And you know, I. I I feel like maybe it's not shown in the film, but I, I my assumption is like he's probably taking care of a lot of the stuff around the house. He's he's he handles like some phone calls earlier in the film. He's which we'll get cooking. Into. Yeah, it's like he's his way of dealing with grief is to try and make things as easy as he can for the people around him, and that's kind of what I think. Uh, that's that's why he's in the film is to kind of represent that that way of handling grief. And so I, while I don't think he's in the ver- movie very much, I think he still represents something that matters. And so I, I like that he's in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, he creates the the amount of tension too. Of like, otherwise it's just it's just Annie going crazy. Yeah, and it's yeah. just Peter being a, a sacrificial lamb. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it something? Uh, isn't he like twenty three years older than Tony Collette? Yeah, yeah. yeah he's he would have been uh, the the actor's age would have been fifty five um, when he had Charlie. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, Gabriel Byrne. Yeah, he's, he's so much older, but it, but it, but it's it doesn't a, feel weird in the movie at all. Like I, I didn't, I I didn't, it didn't like stick out to me. I was like, yeah, okay. Oh, it stuck out to me. Like they're he's very old. He's very much older than Tony Collette. It's not even the the fact that the the, the problem I have there being an age gap in their relationship is the fact that he's fifty five having a child. That just seems ridiculous to me. It seems fine to me. Have kids whenever you want. Yeah, it just ever struck me as like, ah, uh, yeah, it's just in them. It's it's not a big deal to me. I yeah, like I the mean, character it, enough, and yeah. it, it, he's a good looking dude, so he could pass for maybe fifty. Yeah, yeah I, I, he's I probably he's portraying good. a younger dude than what he actually is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do we want to talk about Peter next? Yeah, let's talk about how um, Harry Astor just told him, "Hey, for ninety seven percent of this movie, you're just going to stand there, <laughs> and that's it." That's all you're gonna do. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't do a ton, but I think the scenes he's in, he's used effectively. Yeah, I mean, he is used. I think it works well for the movie what he's doing. But yeah, he does not do a lot. He is there's a lot of standing there, literally making no emotion on his face, which is uh, good because he's a he's a terrible crier and not like not like a terrible crier, like ugly face, like wow, this he's bad at crying. Yeah, because <laughs> he was like, uh, 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 like dude, like a demon just threw something at the glass cabinet, and you're like, oh. I'm or like uh, <laughs> he has that dream where uh, his mom's choking him and he wakes up. He's like, oh, mom, you were choking me. It's like I acted literally just as well as he did. In that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's he's not a good crier, but I, I think he a lot of the stuff like we talked about, kind of his slow turns where it's like something his scary eyes. behind him. He, he emotes like kind of the scary parts of the movie well enough that I, I don't have a problem with him as an actor in this. Uh, so that's Alex Wolf who plays him. And this is, I think it's kind of pretentious and I, it kind of annoys me when actors do this. Uh, he was like, I'm going like full character actor for this, like method acting for this. And so he wanted everyone to call him Peter on set and that's how everyone referred to him. And after like his last scene, he then introduced himself to everyone as Alex. I just think it's like, you played kind of a smaller role in this film. Like this is Tony Collette's movie. If she wants to be a method actor in this, then go for it. But it's like, you're just kind of the kid in this. Like, I, I kind of think it's weird when people do that. It's like, I guess yeah. it depends on the type of role. I just don't know? think this warranted that at all. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. <laughs> uh, another thing that he did, he you know when he slams his face on the desk. Yeah. He like 
he told Ari Aster, he's like, because again, he's going all method actor. He's like, I want to break my nose. He's like, I'm going to break my own nose. He's like, use a real desk. Ari Aster's like, no, I'm not going <laughs> to do that. Like, uh, But kind of the crazy thing that happens. So they have like a foam pad on the desk and then he slams his face on it. But it's still like a hard desk under that. He hit his head hard enough that he actually like dislocated his jaw, which is an injury it had before apparently. Yeah. So the fact that he kind of, I, I don't know if it cuts and there's any time between that, but he hits his face and then he gets off the desk. I wonder if his jaw is like dislocated during that scene. Yeah, that'd be wild. No, yeah, it does cut. Yeah, okay. Because it it shows him like scampering away. Yeah, I, I couldn't remember if there was a cut there or not. But yeah, it, it'd be kind of crazy if he was doing that with his jaw all messed up. But yeah, I guess he kind of got what he wanted. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Um. Yeah, I I I I, I like the stuff he's in. Um, I think there's a good bit of dialogue between him and Annie where he's talking about going to the party. She's like, oh, are you going to drink? He's like, we're not even old enough to drink. But then he goes and smokes weed there. It's like, everyone yeah. knows you're lying. Like, yeah. just because you're a kid doesn't mean you can't get booze, doesn't mean you can't get drugs. And, right. And then uh, when his sister is going to go with, he's like, okay, no drinking. He's like, I already said I wasn't going to. It's like, you're lying, kid. We all yeah. know that you're going to use some substance there. Pretty, pretty awful parenting in that moment, too. You think so? Yeah, go ahead and take your 13-year-old weird sister to a high school party. Yeah, because she clearly knew. It wasn't a school function. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. That, that, I think kind of the setup for that is a little weird. Uh, but it's all just to drive you to get to like, like that. That is like literally like my one problem with the movie is that entire setup and scene. So I also think of it though as like, it's like, it's kind of like a control thing, you know, between her and Peter. Like, not only is, uh, Charlie, um, kind of an annoyance to her. Yeah. But also, this will keep Peter in line. And that's right. why and I, I kind of get that. It's like he's you can't you can't act out at this party. You know you can't yeah, yeah, go you, and get drunk and if and you're gonna lie to me, then you also have more responsibility. Yeah. as well. I kind of okay. That's a take on it. I hadn't thought about before. Yeah, I, I like that. Just like I think as like an intelligent person, you don't give your teenager responsibility over your other child yeah. to a party. That's I, just like, I like common sense. Like yeah, obviously. Yeah. And I wonder. And it's very clear that she's projecting on Peter that like she's not gonna. She's not going to take responsibility for that. Yeah. Like that's, I'm sure that's hundred percent something that she feels, but she's never going to say it because it's someone else's fault. Yep. Uh, so we're talking about Charlie. Do we want to move on to her? Yeah. That's a uh, yeah. Millie Shapiro. Uh, it's actually kind of funny. Uh, her and, uh, Alex Wolf, they went to like the same kind of school for arts together. So they knew each other, uh, prior to that. Um, Ari Aster also, he like encouraged them to kind of, um, go out in character and do things together. So they, they went out and had lunch, I guess. And so for like an hour and a half, basically like they were in character and, and Millie Shapiro just doesn't say anything. Cause she's just kind of a weird little kid. And so <laughs> Alex Wolf is like out to lunch with someone and he's like trying to talk and have a conversation and she's just there probably making clicking noises. All oh, the whole I, time, re- so. I really hope that's hilarious. <laughs> she's like, can I get that chicken? She's like cutting off the fucking body pieces. And making yeah. Dolls. She, like, she has like the, the kids save scissors and she's <laughs> cutting up her chicken tenders. <laughs> Uh, they also, um, the, the hoodie that she wears, you see her in like the very beginning, uh, when she's in the, the tree house, mm. that hoodie, like, um, her and Alex Wolf went out and like, he was like, go like, like you're going shopping with her, like figure out what she wants to wear. So he actually picked out the hoodie for her and that's like what ends up in the film. That's why it's like so oversized and so weird. Yeah. Uh, Cause so it's funny. like, he's like, I'm trying to figure out what she should wear, but he's like a kid trying to figure out something else for another kid. So I think there's a, I guess if you, I like knock the method acting, but. I think it kind of works for that kind of stuff. I think that's interesting and it it builds kind of the awkward weirdness between them knowing that there was even like more background in it. Like they feel like brother and sister who aren't like really connected. 
Yeah. And I think the age gap helps with that. Like it, it makes it kind of land uh, more realistically to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think more stuff about Charlie. I, I like the uh, Annie's does the miniatures and then she does her own kind of distorted version of miniatures. And I like to think of that as uh, Annie talks about how her mom got her hooks in early on Charlie. And like, so that's kind of why maybe she does kind of a grosser version of the miniatures. It's like, yeah, it's still Annie's daughter, but it's, it, it, she's doing something, but like kind of wrong. You know? I mean, I do not think that's why she's making them at all. But yeah, I think she makes them because of uh, um, the demon inside of her body. Well, I think of it; it's a, it's a, it's a hereditary thing. Um, uh, Annie actually says that she was a tomboy growing up. D- didn't like dolls. Didn't like dresses. Didn't like pink. I think it's, I think it's ironic that she actually ends up being a miniaturist um, for someone that didn't like dolls. Yeah, and I think that's reflected in in Charlie, only because. I think the same thing has affected Annie. Yeah. Um, that she has like a piece of like payment in her as I don't well. I know about all that. But I do think, I don't even think that, um, that Charlie is like really necessarily a, like a person. Oh, I don't think so either. That she's just a vessel for the demon. And like, mm-hmm. I, I could, she gets turned into one of her dolls at the end of the movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which I, love I love that. that. There's yeah. the setup of like the two little dolls bowing, and they have the yeah on Jones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's great. Yeah. yeah, that is so great. Another thing I, I really like about just the Charlie character, and uh, I think a lot of movie trailers ruin movies. I love the trailer for this. If I don't know if you guys remember it at all, it Charlie is like heavy in the trailer, and so it makes you think that like, oh, what an important character. And not that she's not important, but you think that she's gonna be in the film the whole time, and then when she's killed, like uh, like 30, 40 minutes in. And you still have like at least another hour, hour of 10 to go in the film. And so it's like, I loved that. That was, this is a film where I got the shock value of that. Cause I was like, oh my God, is she, she can't really be dead because, because yeah. I'm set up to believe that she's going to play a big role after this. Yeah. It's like, she can't really. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, she's really there. And you yeah. see her head on the ground. I was like, oh my God. Like I, 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 this is a movie I, you talk about it being hard to get through. Like that part, I was like, oh my God, like yeah, this is really difficult. happening and yeah. I have to watch this now. Yeah. Like, yeah. And speaking of really happening, it really happened. Um, in 2004, there was uh, two, uh, two friends, uh, 21-year-old John Hutcherson and his friend, uh, 23-year-old Francis Brome, were on their way back home from a night out, and both of them were drunk. Hutcherson was driving while Brome was hanging out of the passenger window. He drove off the road and sideswiped a telephone pole, decapitating Brome. <sighs> and... Hutcherson, they like he, apparently he was like he said he was unaware of what happened to it, but others claimed that he looked remorseful when the police found him sleeping at his home. Like he kept driving all the way home, parked in the driveway, and went to bed. And the next morning, a neighbor was walking by and saw Brom's corpse in the truck. Oh my god! It that's fucking crazy. It's just the everything they shot was like, and I think that's why it feels so real. Is like okay, here's a, something that actually happened. How do we visually represent? that happening make it believable it feels absolutely believable like man i can actually and then to find out it it did happen yeah this is a is real thing oh even worse like i think it's even worse than someone doing it wrong and uh in terms of like shooting it and being like man that's kind of a crazy setup but good thing that's not real yeah no it yeah. makes it so much worse knowing there's a like i don't know if it's inspiration behind the scene but knowing that this is a real thing oh that makes that makes even that it's makes disgusting it, yeah <laughs> that's Thanks for that fact, Calvin. That was great. Yeah. yeah. I'm all about fun facts. Yeah, I'd call that fun. Ah, okay, speaking of fun facts, I, I like to go through the IMDb pages and kind of look at some of the trivia that comes up in these. 
And usually sometimes there's some pretty good stuff on there. And then sometimes there's other really annoying things where it's like, if you look at the poll, um, like following the beheading scene, you can, you may notice like the, uh, the coven's symbol uh, put on the, on the telephone pole. And I was like, yeah, duh, it's in the middle of the frame and you linger on it. I know. For like 10 seconds. Yeah. And it's almost like you could put a fun fact like, uh, if you if you look closely, you may notice Tony Collette is an is an actress in this film. It's like, yeah, I know. Like it's it's the, it's that same kind of thing. It's like, what a dumb fun fact. Uh, uh, apparently, people miss it. I guess. Yeah, no, I've talked to quite a few people. Not not a whole lot of people notice it. That's so interesting. Like Pete, my buddy Pete at work, uh, he's he's a big fan of this movie and all of the A twenty four stuff. He said he noticed like his third or fourth time watching the movie. I I don't consider myself a very smart man, but. I, it's right in the middle of the frame. Like I saw it. I definitely caught it. I, I, I still don't know if like people are looking for that. Is the yeah. Thing. yeah. I guess maybe the first time I watched it, I didn't know what it was. Yeah. I didn't maybe associate it with the cult immediately, but like, I definitely, I was like, that means something like, yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, it's the same symbol that's on Annie's necklace that you yeah. see when she's giving uh, the eulogy as well mm-hmm. too, though. So we've been talking about the beheading scene. Uh, I, I kind of like, we kind of talked about not liking the setup for that. I think one thing that, Ari Aster does not as much in this movie and I'll kind of harp on it more when we do our review of Midsummer. I think there's some stuff he does. It's like so obvious and it's kind of just to let the audience know like, Hey, remember this thing? Like, or, or I need to take time to remind you or, or show you what's going on because you might not get it. It's they're at the party and it's the kids chopping up nuts. It's the most annoying scene. Who, what what kind of kids are just like better get the almonds out and chop these up? Like they were, they were not walnuts. even almonds. Almonds are gas. They were walnuts. They were walnuts. Walnuts. Suck. Whatever. I don't. And care. like, are you putting all of those nuts into one? It's cake? so many. <laughs> what is going on? Yeah. How like, many cakes are you making? Yeah, dude. It's like, what is happening? You've already set up that uh, Charlie has the nut allergy, and then they he just spends forever showing teens chopping up nuts, which. Yeah, that's what I go to a party to do as a kid. Like, I better make a cake. Well, a high school party even has food. Yeah, or people, (laughs) or I mean, like, especially people making food. Yeah. I don't want want food made by a high schooler. No. I just, I hate the setup for that. Uh, And what high school kid wants walnuts in their cake? Nobody. Yeah. Like, that that part feels, for a movie that I think is nearly flawless in terms of, like, a filmmaker, like, really just putting out something that is, like, so tightly made. That's the one scene I'm just like, what the fuck were you thinking when you put this in? Like, everything else has been flawless. Why would you... You have a, a, a giant nut-chopping scene, and I get it. It sets up, like, the, uh, you know, her needing to go to the hospital, and it, it's a, it, it sets up the whole beheading scene. I just think, like, you've been so clever so far, and you're so clever the rest of your movie. How did you have such a dumb way to get you to the beheading scene, which is, is like, a pivotal moment in the film? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's crazy. It's my yeah. one knock against Ari Aster in this movie. I was like... <laughs> So I was reading this one article and there's like a fan theory about how uh, the grandma gave her the nut allergy by breastfeeding her, which I just don't understand how someone came to that conclusion. I don't, I don't get that either. I don't either. get that at yeah. all. How's that a possibility thing? Because it's hereditary. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> that's Gosh. dumb. But no one else that's actually that. how Ellen died. Like she ate too many walnuts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that at all. Um, no. Yeah. I was like, I was like, no one else even has a nut. Like it doesn't say that the grandma has a nut allergy and she yeah. can somehow transfer that through breast milk. Like, yeah. No, it was weird. That's yeah. a really, a really deep take that. Yeah. Just re- really reach in there. Whoever came up with that take is it's bad and you should feel bad. <laughs> uh, that's, that's terrible. Um, so we've talked about, I think, uh, we had a couple scenes we wanted to go over, talked about kind of the grief counseling scene, the beheading. And then I think the other, like most important is like just kind of the end sequence. I, it's, 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 amazing. I, it's closing out the movie in the most fantastic way. It, it, it hits like all these great notes. 
I think for for me, it's, I'm it's, getting goosebumps right now. Yeah. I think about it. like I'm getting yeah. chills. It is it's frightening. Yeah, wordless, that, breathless, viscerally upsetting, and and just and just like uncomfortable. Yeah. It's all of those things at once. Yeah, so I think that sequence starts with um, Peter coming downstairs and he's found the charred remains of his father. And like we kind of mentioned earlier, that's when you see uh, Annie's up in the corner, kind of out of focus. And then... Uh, well, she's up in the corner when he first wakes up. That's what I know. So. Both of them, yeah. Yeah. In his room and then also when she's in the, the family room. The way she moves around on the walls too is so, so creepy. creepy. Yeah, yeah, it's so great. But we talk about kind of the slow turns that... Uh, Peter does and this is probably my favorite shot in the whole movie is he's he's turned around and you, you've seen Tony Collette's character up in the corner and so I think the assumption is he's going to turn it around the camera's going to go up to her he's going to freak out and then they're he's going to run away or whatever no but there's a naked dude in but the fucking doorway the, oh my god <laughs> it is so frightening and, and yeah. I, I think part of what makes it so scary is uh, is we've been conditioned to assume there's going to be some jump scare when he turns yeah. around and the fact that it's just a guy there and it's not his mom that's like crawl yeah. down from the ceiling to, to chase him. It's just a guy and it just holds on that for so long and it's so uncomfortable. It is. And it's, and it's, it's, uh, you start to see more and more of like the cult members creeping into the house and then, you know, it, it ends up with them in the, in the uh, tree house. But I just think, I, I just love that scene so much. Like, and it just takes so long and that's why I love this movie so much. Like, let your shot breathe, man. Like that scene is so much creepier because of how long you just see this guy in the doorway. Yeah. Yeah. And I do too. Like, I love the the transition from, um, you know, Steve gets set, set on fire and then uh, we go to the exterior shot of the house and it's day. And then we uh, jump cut tonight and all of the coven is out on the yard and they're all naked. Yeah. yeah it's I, super weird. <laughs> I just, it, it's like, it's not even a jump scare, but it's just like, oh, this is unsettling. I've yeah. scared myself again. Yeah. Ah, yeah. oh, it's beautiful. And then uh, he turns back around, and uh, this is another like kind of jump scare, but it's like Tony Collette's in the corner, or I, I keep saying Tony Collette because she's just so great. I can't Annie, not refer yeah. to it. Annie's in the corner, and she it's it's really dark, and you see her bust out of it, and then that's when like the chase takes place, and Peter gets up in the attic. Oh my God! Speaking of getting up in the attic, that scene where she's just bashing her head. Oh, on the attic door. Yeah, that is terrifying. That's what I'm saying this first, whole like, sequence is yeah. just it's just. It's got you gripped, man. I'm yeah. just like, oh my god, I cannot lock, like, not watch this. And he walks yeah. up in there, and before we had noticed, like, because uh, Steve and Annie had both gone up and found the her mother's body up there, headless. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you go up there, and it's not there anymore. And you're like, what is happening yeah. now? Because like you expect, I expected like he's gonna freak out because he's gonna see his grandma's headless body. Yeah. And it's not there. And all of a sudden, once again, there's naked people in the background. Yeah. There's actually multiple. Yeah. Um, so there's a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's the three that he sees, but there's uh-huh. another one actually hiding behind. Yeah. It's like, the, there's like, it's like in the corner. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, but I love it. Oh, we're just so, we're so drawn up in, um, how uncomfortable this is, like how, how scared we are. And when she's actually banging on the, um, the door or the whatever, uh, the access hole to the attic. Yeah. It's like, Oh man, that's, it's a, it's a normal horror movie trope, you know, like thinking of like the shining, like pounding on the door. And it's not until you actually cut there and you realize, Oh, how, wait, how is she actually getting tall enough to knock on it? She's just floating on it, just bashing her face. Like her head. Oh my God. That that scene is insane. Like that's an insane thing to do. Like, yeah. And that's, that's crazy. And then, And then, yeah, he's just... I knew I wanted to talk about this movie, but it feels like we can't even be, like, super coherent going through it because I'm, like, reliving the scene right now. It's 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 so visceral and there's so much going on. It's like, all I can do is be like, 
go see this movie because yeah. we're not even going to do this end sequence justice. You have to just see it. It's so good. And then uh, I think the sound design in that scene is, is uh, awesome as well. Don't do that motion when you. Oh that. yeah, yeah. You're like uh, like moving your fist yeah, back yeah, and forth, flossing like, like, your uh, teeth, like, but yeah. it's not <laughs> flossing her flossing neck. Your, yeah, flossing your spine. Uh, yeah. she goes through the back of her head. Like it's just. Like, I was sitting there with uh, my buddy Blake and me. We're watching the scene, and uh, he's not like a super huge movie guy, or definitely not a huge horror movie guy. And he's like, "What?" He's like, "What? What? 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 What, what is happening right now?" And he starts freaking out. He's like, "Is she cutting off her own fucking head?" And I'm like, "Yeah, pretty sure." He's like, "He's like, she needs to go faster." And then yeah. she just starts going faster. And I was like, "This uh, is this is fucking gruesome and it's, terrifying." It's brutal, brutal. Yeah. Uh, and then I, we can move on. It. You know, he jumps out the window. He ends up in the in the treehouse. And I, I like what you said a lot, Calvin. It's like a, the, the movie starts out with a shot on the on the treehouse, and that's where it all ends. And I love I love just like that. Uh, completing the circle, kind of like the, the the continuity within the film, I think it works out so well. Yeah, and especially with regard to windows, because windows are a lot, uh, are uh, a big part of um, how he composes shots, especially with the treehouse in it. So the fact that he leaps out of a window is, yeah. I think, kind of like breaking out of the dollhouse. Does he house. die when he does when he does that? He's at least knocked unconscious enough to the point where he is weak enough to be overtaken by payment. Okay, because one thing I don't like about this movie is uh, the blue light thing that oh, represents that. the demon. I think it was a little cheesy and I don't think I needed it. I think it was it was just enough visual representation to see something but without being uh, overdone. I love and I love too that it's just you know it's probably CGI but it also feels like like a car passing or they're just playing with lens a yeah. lens and the light. I think that's kind of fun. I'd say yeah, I think it's unnecessary. I think it's uh, I don't especially, think you need it in the movie. Especially when you think of like um how those images are represented. Like, have you ever done like a, an aura photo or seen an aura photo? Mm-mm. There's, there are these things called aura cameras, which are just, it's just a special type of film that, um, uh, uh, what it does is it's meant to represent your aura, like the, how it gets exposed. It's like pink or it's yeah. like blue and it reflects who you are. And like, uh, it's basically an astrology photograph. Yeah. They're, they're kind of cheesy, kind of goofy because, they're they're like yeah there was only ever a hundred made it's like that's not how cameras work (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so it's like that so that's why it's represented like that it's 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 more of a mystical thing yeah that that didn't throw me off at all like again i i just think everything in this movie fits so well it's so planned out everything totally makes sense to me uh uh i don't think we forgot to mention this is a this is a two-parter we uh we kind of want to wrap this one up now we usually like to go through kind of the the, the nuts and bolts of these movies first and yeah everything you're seeing on frame the first the first layer yeah we definitely went through the nuts so we won't talk about those no more yeah I think uh we'll, we'll dive deeper into some of the subtext and get to the bolts yeah yeah, yeah. so uh yeah so thank you the for listening check, all that yeah. stuff you know <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah thank you uh for joining us for part one uh, I hope you guys catch part two uh for, with that uh, I'm your host Connor I have my co-host Jaden and former guest Calvin thanks for having me back and thank you for listening to now this is podcasting <laughs>